Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts, Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Hello, this is Brian Auten and welcome to the podcast, joined by Chad Gross. Greetings, Chad. Hello, how's everybody doing? How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited to the core today. Are you really? Yes. Last podcast, we talked about evangelism, and uh, that was great with uh, Mark Middleberg. And today we're returning to a guest I've had on 12 years ago, uh, wow. Dr. Hugh Ross. And wow. Uh, wow, wow, wow. he's an ast- wow. <laughs> astrophysicist and he's the senior scholar and founder of Reasons to Believe. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But yeah, I'm excited about today's episode about design and his newest book, Design to the Core. Yeah, I um yeah, reading through Dr. Ross's book, I mean, it is a bit technical, but essentially he's arguing from the very universe down to the core of the earth. The the more we uncover scientifically, the more it has the earmarks of being finely tuned, that being designed for us, uh, for life. And so uh, I'm excited to talk to him about it. And uh, Dr. Ross has been somebody I followed for many years. I've watched a number of his debates. And Dr. Ross is probably the key reason why my wife believes that the universe is actually old and not young. This is just a funny little anecdote that you'll appreciate. We were both taught young earth creationism, kind of like the Ken Ham flavor, if you will. Mm. And uh, when I began getting more into apologetics and encountering people who believed that the earth was old, I was kind of open to those arguments and found them interesting. And lo and behold, I kind of quickly began leaning that way and then committed to an old earth view. When Danielle, my wife, found out that I had become, well, even that I was leaning that way, that that I thought, wow, this is pretty plausible. She was very concerned. Part of her even thought maybe, you know, am I becoming a bit heretical because of the way we were taught? So we watched a debate between... Ken Ham and Jason Lyles representing young earth creationism and Walter Kaiser and Hugh Ross representing old earth creationism. And at the conclusion of this very lengthy, I think it's about four and a half hour debate, uh, she actually said, wow, I had no idea that there were so many good arguments and, and reasons to accept the, the old earth view. And shortly after that, she kind of became persuaded of that view herself. So I'm hoping to be able to share that with Dr. Ross, perhaps, depending on, you know, how the interview goes and such. Maybe he'll convert me today. We'll see. (laughs) Right. So Hugh Ross will be joining us in just a moment. He's the author of multiple books, including The Creator and the Cosmos, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, Improbable Planet, and the one we'll be talking about today, Designed to the Core. In essence, we'll just be asking a lot of questions about how the evidence is just overwhelming for design from the macro to the micro when it comes to the universe, the solar system, and Earth. You can check out more by Hugh Ross at Reasons to Believe. You can go to reasons.org for his organization. Check out all the links to these resources and his books in the show notes. Chad, tell us a little bit about what's coming up. Yeah, so I wanted to make our listeners aware that in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, on March 17th through the 19th, there is going to be the annual Defenders Conference. 
And uh, the topic is on hell and various views of hell will be defended and discussed throughout the weekend. And I'll be kind of uh, sharing some more details in the upcoming month on the podcast. But for right now, it's just important to know that you can find all the relevant information on uh, the defendersconference.com. And again, that is March 17th through the 19th, 2023 at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And interestingly enough, I'm really honored that I've been invited to do one of the breakout sessions. And uh, right now I'm planning on talking, challenging Bertrand Russell's assertion that there is nothing said praising intellectual pursuits in the Gospels. Kind of this idea that the intellect is not elevated in the gospel biographies. And so I'll be challenging that. Uh, so if you'd like to come out and meet me, uh, you can do it in uh, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And I got to be honest with you, Brian, I'm a little concerned about this because since I've been invited to do this and I've agreed, I've been just for fun getting on weather.com and checking the weather. <laughs> and Man, it is not warm there. I mean, we're talking like we're talking like four degrees. So I'm imagining myself, you know, dressed pretty warmly as I'm traveling throughout. But no, I'm excited and it should be a good time. But to learn more details uh, and how you can be involved and uh, even be there, uh, check out the defendersconference.com. Super. Find all these resources in the show notes, but let's go to the interview. Let's get ready. Switch me on. Well, Dr. Hugh Ross, it's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast again. Well, thank you for inviting me back. I appreciate it. Well, as an astrophysicist, I know you stay abreast of everything that's happening in science and James Webb space telescopes and things like that. I have to ask you uh, what your thoughts are on, you know, the James Webb space telescope and uh, the things they've been finding and maybe some of confirmations or things that interest you when it comes to talking about what's going on with NASA and their telescopes. Well, like nearly all astronomers, I really am thrilled with just how powerful a telescope that James Webb is proving to be. I mean, uh, it was a great success. Uh, it exceeded expectations. And I, you know, I frequently post uh, the latest images from James Webb on my Facebook page and always give people a little explanation. What is this telling us about the universe? What is it telling us about creation? And uh, the, oh, we're going to get a whole lot more from the James Webb, but just these initial few months has given us a much stronger case for the Big Bang creation model, uh, which the Bible predicted several features of it uh, many years ago. So that's exciting. I mean, uh, it's giving us insights on star formation and planet formation that we've never had before. And uh, you know, we have yet to even get the deep space images from the James Webb. You know, even what is revealed so far, we're seeing incredible details in spiral galaxies that are more than a billion light years away. No other telescope had that uh, power. So yeah, like all, all astronomers, I'm really thrilled of, of what I'm seeing through the James Webb. And I'm committed to keep the lay public abreast of what this means, not only scientifically, but philosophically and theologically. I do have a question along that line is when it first came out, I heard, forgive me for not knowing the details, but I figured you may know what I'm talking about. There was some sort of uh, response from people thinking, oh, well, maybe this disproves some of our previous ideas about certain cosmological models. What have they found? 
Yeah, I wrote a, a, an article on it on our website so people can get the details there. It comes from one man. His name is Eric Lerner. Uh, he doesn't have a doctoral degree, but he does has done a lot of reading in plasma physics. Real fan of Hans Solvane, Nobel laureate, who proposed the idea decades ago that uh, maybe gravity doesn't explain all the dynamics of the universe we see. Maybe electromagnetic radiation plays a significant role. And I've debated Eric Lerner on the radio uh, many years ago, uh, pointing out that we now have measurements of the magnetic field strengths of galaxies and the space between galaxies. And those magnetic fields are thousands of times less than what Hans Elvain needed to make his theory work. So he got observations showing it. And actually what the James Webb has revealed to us is the opposite of what Eric Lerner claimed. It's giving us stronger evidence for the Big Bang creation model, not weaker evidence. But you know, in reading Eric Lerner's book and in debating him uh, publicly, I realize he's an atheistic worldview. And it's his atheistic worldview that compels him to deny Big Bang cosmology. You know, he is astute enough to recognize if the Big Bang model is correct, it implies that there must be a God beyond space and time that created everything. You know, and he's committed philosophically to reject that. So, of course, uh, he's been claiming the Big Bang is not true. Uh, but with every month that goes by, we get more and more evidence that it really is true. And, uh, you know, it's hard to find an astronomer uh, that doesn't believe that the Big Bang creation model is a correct explanation of the universe. I mean, the very fact that we see, uh, we, we astronomers can make measurements of the past temperature of the universe, and those past temperature measurements perfectly fit what we would expect if the universe arose from a Big Bang creation event. That's just one of dozens of evidences. In fact, I wrote a whole book on this, The Creator in the Cosmos, now in its fourth edition, where I document uh, the overwhelming evidence for the Big Bang creation model. Uh, but as a Christian, what thrills me, thousands of years ago, the Bible predicted at least three, if not four, of the fundamental features of Big Bang cosmology, and not until the 20th century did astronomers uh, have any idea that these biblical predictions about the universe indeed were correct. The Bible said it first. You know, you, you said something there that I actually was anxious to ask you about. So since you've already gone there, I'm going to uh, expound a little bit on it. You, so my, my contention has long been that, in my own mind, that the the only reason why we're people are coming up with all these other alternative models to try to explain the evidence for the origin of the universe does stem a lot from skepticism. So so in other words, if the evidence for the Big Bang didn't have such strong theistic implications, I don't think that we would see all these other models or attempts to explain it away. Do you, do you agree with that? Yes, you can particularly see that in the early history of Big Bang cosmology. I mean, uh, it was George Lemaitre that first proposed the Big Bang model uh, back in 1925. And when he did, you had physicists and astronomers saying, we got to get rid of this. I mean, uh, Sir Arthur Eddington said, this is philosophically repugnant. We can't have a beginning to the universe. Others said, hey... If the Big Bang model is right, the universe is only several billion years old. That's not enough time for evolution to 
explain the history of life. We need the universe to be at least a quadrillion years old. Mm. Uh, but the evidence began to accumulate, particularly in the latter half of the 20th century, where people began to realize, okay, uh, we're not going to be able to get rid of the Big Bang. The evidence is just way too strong. And so today, yeah, people are now arguing, not whether or not it's a Big Bang, but what kind of Big Bang model it is. I mean, as I look right. at the scientific literature, the debate is all focused, well, which of many, or which of several, what they call Lambda-CDM Big Bang creation models is correct. And Lambda-CDM refers to the fact we're looking at a Big Bang universe dominated first by dark energy and secondarily by cold, dark matter. And so now we're looking at the very fine details of the Big Bang. The idea that whether or not the Big Bang happened, uh, that got taken care of in the last century. Hmm. It's helpful. You mentioned your book, Creator of the Cosmos, but one that Chad and I have recently read is your newest book, Designed to the Core. And, uh, you know, it, basically focusing on the fine-tuning of everything that you, we find uh, from the the large-scale shape of the universe to basically the core of the Earth itself and the magnetic fields and things like that. So it's just a fascinating tour de force of just all the um, particular elements fine-tuned for making life possible at our time in history. I was wondering if you could kind of give an overview, just a quick rundown of sort of your goal in the book. And the impression I get is that you're constantly finding more and more just that confirms and confirms and confirms design in every layer. So maybe you could just talk a bit about the book and, and the overview of that. Sure. Well, I've been writing on the fine-tuned characteristics of the universe that makes our existence possible now for 35 years. And this is the wow. fifth book I've written on uh, fine-tuning. But what's different about this book is, I, is I've been reading the scientific literature. You know, all astronomers concede that we see design on the scale of the universe as a whole. Now, uh, the point I'm making in design to the core, we not only see it at the level of the entire universe, we see it at all cosmic size scales. We see it at the universe. We see it in the cosmic web. We see it in our super galaxy cluster, our galaxy cluster, our local group, our galaxy, uh, the local arm in which we exist in our galaxy, the local bubble, the local fluff in the solar system, our, you know, all the characteristics of our comet belts, uh, our planetary uh, partners, our star, our planet, the interior of our planet, the interior of the moon. It's on all size scales. And the other thing I was trying to communicate is, uh, you know, when you read the scientific literature, they talk about fine-tuning as to what is necessary to get primitive bacteria. Uh, but if you look at the fine-tuning, it's exponentially greater in the context of what you need for plants and animals, not just bacteria. And it's exponentially greater again in the context of what you need for the equivalent of human beings. But the greatest exponentiation I see is the fine-tuned designs you need in the universe and all of its components at all size scales and all of the events that have happened in the history of the universe to make possible the redemption of billions of human beings. And so mm. the book basically concludes the saying, this fine-tuning is not just for our existence, it's for our redemption from sin and evil. This is mm. why the universe is the way it is. 
This is why all the subcomponents of the universe are exactly the way it is. And I actually argue that this is a guide for future scientific research. So I'm now challenging my peers who are not Christians to say, look, I know you're not a Christian, but if you will do your scientific research from a biblical redemptive perspective, it'll make you a more successful scientist. Try it and see what happens. Wow. Mm. That's powerful. One of the things that in your book, obviously, like you said, it focuses on the fine tuning the universe down to the very core of the earth. But early in the book, you address the multiverse hypothesis, yes. which kind of, kind of attempts to provide an alternative explanation for the fine tuning. Can you kind yes. of explain just for us, for our listeners, kind of what the multiverse uh, hypothesis is and why you believe it, it fails and, and even why you thought it was important to address that kind of out of the gate? Well, long before people came up with the term multiverse, back in the 1980s, I was telling public audiences, eventually the evidence for the fine-tuned designs of the universe to make our existence possible will become so pervasive and so overwhelming that non-theists will have nowhere else to go but to hypothesize that's an infinite number of universes where they're all different from one another, and that uh, the characteristics that we're measuring that make our existence possible are here by pure chance, not because there's some God fine-tuning and engineering and designing it. But I've always pointed out to audiences, whenever an atheist appeals to infinity, they've got nothing. You can explain <laughs> everything if you go to infinity. Yeah. And I really appreciate Leonard Susskind. He's not a believer. He's a theoretical physicist. But he said... We atheists have got to stop using the multiverse. It explains everything. An argument that explains everything explains nothing. Now, I came mm. up with an analogy, and I put it in the book Designed to the Core, that if you've got an infinite number of universes, we're all different from one another, you need to realize infinity times infinity is infinity. Infinity to the infinity power is infinity. So if you've got an infinite number of universes, they're all different from one another, you'll have an infinite number of planets just like planet Earth. And those infinite number of planet Earths, you're going to have an infinite variety of birch tree species. And birch trees have the characteristic that they peel thin white pieces of bark. Well, if you've got an infinite variety of birch tree species, one of those species will peel rectangular pieces of thin white bark that measure eight and a half by 11 inches. And these pieces of thin white bark will fall on soils with random chemicals in them that'll make random markings on those pieces of white birch bark that will duplicate all the paragraphs, the equations, the diagrams, the photographs that appear in every scientific paper that's ever been published. So those millions of scientific papers that are out there, they didn't come from the minds of scientists. The multiverse did it. And so... <laughs> You're basically showing the philosophical inconsistency. If you're going to appeal to a multiverse uh, to eliminate God's design, it simultaneously eliminates all human design. And no one lives that way. So, But the bottom line is, you cannot appeal to an infinity to make a philosophical argument. It explains everything, therefore it explains nothing. Wow, that's helpful. Thank you. Earlier, you mentioned how you know some of the fine-tuned aspects that people look for are just for say bacteria 
And uh, it reminds me of what you were writing in the book about the search for exoplanets, that is, Earth-like planets that might be candidates for harboring life of some kind. And it seems interesting, in, in the light of the rest of the book, how that can even be a viable thing that they can be doing. I mean, it's, it's fascinating that they can find planets that are within a certain range as, as far as size and location and the type of stars and things like that. But when it comes to actually all the things that are needed for just a life to exist, it seems such a unlikely prospect. How can they stay in business? <laughs> you know, <laughs> considering all those aspects that are so finely tuned that you need for life, why is the search for exoplanets something that they think is worth doing? Well, the first exoplanets orbiting stars like the sun were discovered in uh, uh, 1995. So uh, we've gone almost 30 years. And now we have discovered over 5,300 planets orbiting other stars. But I remember back in uh, 1995, they were saying, uh, we're going to find hundreds of planets just like the planets in our solar system. Well, here we are almost 30 years later with 5,300 plus planets discovered. None of them are like any of the planets in our solar system. In fact, the most Earth-like planet that we've been able to discover is Venus. Venus is much more Earth-like than any of the 5,300 that we have found. And yet no one in their right mind would ever claim that Venus is a planet capable of supporting life. I think they're watching Star Trek or Star Wars where, you know, they're flying to one planet to the next. And you'd think that every one of them's Earth. The gravity's the same. The atmosphere's the same. The prediction we're going to find planets just like the ones that are orbiting our sun. The fact that we haven't found any at all. Mm -hmm. uh, no Mercury uh, twins. No Jupiter twins. It's led to the discovery that every one of the eight planets in our solar system plays a critical role in making advanced life possible here on planet Earth. So, you know, back in the 1990s, we're thinking, well, yes, our planet Earth is special, but not these other planets that orbit the sun. We now know that's not true. All of the eight planets orbiting our solar system have to be exquisitely designed in their characteristic features to make advanced life possible here on planet Earth. So for example, when our family celebrates Thanksgiving, we don't just thank God for planet Earth, we thank him for Mars, we thank him for Neptune, mm. uh, Uranus, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Mercury, uh, Venus, because we realize we wouldn't be able to enjoy our dinner unless each of those planets was exquisitely fine-tuned. And for that wow. matter, we thank God for the five asteroid and comet belts. I mean, not only are we finding planets outside of our solar system, we're finding asteroid and comet belts outside of our solar system. And what we astronomers have discovered, about 80% of all stars have no comets or asteroids at all. The other 20% have asteroid and comet belts that are about a thousand times bigger than ours. And we now actually understand what explains that statistic. In most uh, planetary systems, you've got gas giant planets moving inward towards their host star. And that inward movement scatters out all the asteroids and comets. And that accounts for about 80% of the planetary systems we see outside our solar system. 
The other 20%, the gas giant planets do not move inward, and therefore they retain uh, the original size of their comet and asteroid belts. What happened in our solar system, and we know of no other system where this has happened, uh, where Jupiter and Saturn migrated towards the sun, stopped, reversed, and moved back out. And it's that coming close and moving back out, at, and they stopped at just the right point, we wind up with five asteroid and comet belts that are about a thousandth the size of the asteroid and comet belts uh, that orbit stars that possess them. But what I've written about and designed to the core is that we need those five asteroid and comet belts to be the appropriate distance from the sun with the appropriate populations of asteroids and comets in order for advanced light to be possible here on planet Earth. So it's not just our eight planets. The five asteroid and comet belts likewise have been extraordinarily fine-tuned uh, to make our existence possible. Maybe some of our listeners might be like, oh yeah, well, I've heard like Jupiter is this huge gas giant that sucks in like uh, things that could collide with the Earth and so it's like a vacuum. But I guess for me, I was very surprised to hear like, oh, it's important to have asteroid belts. Can you explain why? Why is that? Because um, sure. that it seems counterintuitive. Well, you know, our planet loses a very tiny amount of water to interplanetary space. And that wouldn't be a problem over a few million years, but over billions, yes, that would be a problem. But the very tiny amount of water we lose is replaced by the tiny amount of water we gain uh, from comets bombarding our atmosphere. Most of these comets are tiny, uh, but a comet is 85% frozen water. So uh, we get a steady delivery of water that perfectly counterbalances the water that we lose. And this is crucial because too little water on planet Earth, uh, we'd be in trouble. Too much, we'd be in trouble. But thanks to the asteroid and comet belts, we have just the right amount of water throughout the entire history of a life on planet Earth. And then we need asteroids. And you don't want asteroids bombarding Earth all the time. I mean, uh, you know, 66 million years ago, a big one hit in Mexico and wiped out the dinosaurs. But hey, that was 66 million years ago. But if we had huge asteroid belts, we'd be getting bombarded so frequently, it would make our existence impossible. But we do get a delivery. And what I find interesting, the Moon-Earth system at this point in time has the appropriate orientation that the Moon actually funnels in the valuable asteroids towards planet Earth. And what I mean by that is there's asteroids out there that are loaded with gold and platinum, uh, nickel, uh, iron, uh, osmium. I mean, uh, NASA is actually looking at an asteroid that they place a dollar value on of 50 quadrillion dollars because of just how rich it is wow. uh, in these uh, very valuable metals. Well, guess what? One of those asteroids uh, struck in South Africa about 300 million years ago, just outside Johannesburg, and that single asteroid is responsible for 80% of the gold and platinum that's in circulation uh, in our economic system today. And likewise, there is an asteroid that hit about a quarter of a billion years ago uh, in uh, Canada, on, uh, uh, near Sudbury, Ontario, 
And that single asteroid is responsible for 50% of the nickel that's in circulation today. So our high-tech civilization has benefited from the very few valuable asteroids uh, that have struck the Earth. Uh, so the comets, the asteroids, they're coming in at just the right rate to sustain our existence today. Those, wow. those are a couple of features. There's more, but those are the two most important. Mm -hmm. I was curious is when we think of this idea as fine tuning and I, as I was reading through your book, one of the things that kept going through my head that I was wondering how you would respond to it is I, I recalled in, I mean, in numerous debates, but the one that sticks out is when the late Christopher Hitchens debated uh, William Lane Craig. And uh, he was often fond of arguing that it, it was very unlikely that our universe was fine tuned because it was headed for heat death. And he of yes. course would, he would kind of pejoratively say, Oh, some designer, some fine tuner is, is the idea that the universe is headed for heat death. Is that at all incompatible with, with Christian theism? Not at all. I mean, I was not raised in a Christian home, uh, but in my late teen years, I began to study the different books that undergird the world's religions. And what I found right. interesting of all the world's holy books, what's unique to the Bible is that it teaches a two creation model. And that was Hitchens' error. He was thinking Christianity was a one creation model. It's not. It's a two creation model. God creates the universe to be a tool in his hands to eradicate evil and suffering once and for all, while at the same time he enhances humans in their capacity to express and experience free will and hence love. That was God's purpose, according to the Bible, for creating, was to mm -hmm magnify the expression of his love. And so this is what he's about. But the moment that evil is eradicated by God, he will replace his universe with a brand new creation. And it's going to be governed by different laws of physics. It'll have different dimensions. And it's in that realm where redeemed human beings will spend eternity. And that's going to happen way before the heat death of the universe occurs. I mean, so... I'm not concerned about the heat death because I realize the universe is a temporary creation. The eternal right. creation comes after God eradicates evil. And one of the books I wrote on fine-tuning was Why the Universe is the Way It Is, where I made mm -hmm. the argument that when you look at the space-time dimensions of our universe and the four fundamental laws of physics that govern it, they're all optimally fine-tuned, not just for our existence, but for the eradication of evil. I mean, wow. in most of these debates that I've had with atheists over the years, they always bring up the problem of evil, but they never sure. consider the role of the laws of physics. The laws of physics are fine-tuned so that they can be tools in God's hands for the efficient and rapid eradication of evil. I, atheists will often say wow. to us Christians, we have no resolution of the problem of evil. We do, if you bring in not just philosophy, but bring in the physics. The physics of the universe uh, actually answers the question of the problem of evil. Wow, that's powerful. Regarding the problem of evil, you know, that tends to be one that people struggle with in, as an obstacle towards belief or faith in God. And one thing that they might accept is that, hey, you know, free will if there's free will, then uh, people are going to do evil things. And, and uh, the evil we see in the world is, is due to 
the effects of man's sinning against God and his rebellion. And so they might be okay with that, but then they might be along back to the fine tuning and the design argument. They might say, well, if this is a loving God who doesn't want evil, then uh, what about natural evil? For instance, tsunamis and earthquakes. And so that kind of brings us back to plate tectonics. And I wonder what your thought is. I know there's a purpose behind things like plate tectonics, and I, I would like you to maybe talk a bit about that. But how does that relate to this objection from natural evil, as it were? Right. Well, again, I could go back to the fact that the laws of physics are fine-tuned. And actually, you see this a hint of this in Genesis 3, uh, where God told Adam and Eve after they rebelled against him, from now on, uh, because of your decision to rebel, you're going to experience more pain, more work. And the book of Ecclesiastes adds, you'll also experience the wasting of your time. And we are biologically designed. We do not like extra work, extra pain, or wasted time. And if you look at the laws of thermodynamics, gravity, and electromagnetism, they are fine-tuned to ensure that the more evil we commit, the more pain we're going to experience, the more work we're going to have to do to undo the damage that results from our evil, and the more time we're going to waste. So the laws of physics are actually motivating us to avoid evil and pursue virtue. And the process discover we do not have the resources within ourselves to live a perfectly virtuous life. However, there's a God out there that loves us to such a great degree, is so powerful and so wise, that he has made a way uh, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's the heart of the Christian message, that we're all stuck in this problem, that we can't live a morally perfect life. But there's a God out there who's prepared to do for us we can't do for ourselves. He actually came to our planet Earth, humbled himself, and took upon himself uh, the atonement price for the evil that we've committed. And what Jesus did on the cross is basically made a way for him to trade his moral perfection for a moral imperfection. I mean, that's the heart of the gospel. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, having the Creator do for you what you can't do for yourself. The laws of physics actually motivate you. Uh, in that uh, particular direction. But because of gravity, electromagnetism, and thermodynamics, as you see in John 16, 33, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. As a physicist, sometimes I paraphrase that text. In this world you'll have thermodynamics, but take heart, I've overcome thermodynamics. Right. <laughs> With thermodynamics, gravity, and electromagnetism. I like that. Things will decay. I mean, that's kind of the law of entropy. Everything in the universe is decaying. And sometimes I've addressed audiences where people dispute that. And they say, hey, if you need proof, look at one another. We're all evidence that we're experiencing <laughs> ongoing decay. But the Bible tells us that decay is temporary. Gravity is temporary. Thermodynamics is temporary. Romans 8.23, the moment the full number of the redeemed humans that God intends to redeem have in fact been redeemed, uh, then the law of decay will no longer operate. And so it's there in place until God completes his work of redemption. And, and when we look at earthquakes, what you notice is we live on a planet where the earthquake number and intensity 
is optimize for existence. I mean, if we had fewer earthquakes with less intensity, this planet would no longer be able to sustain advanced life. Now, if we got more earthquakes with greater intensity, we would suffer more. And likewise, that's true of hurricanes. Hurricanes act as a thermostat to keep the planet from getting too hot. And so it kind of cools things down uh, when things get too hot. Make sure the oceans don't get too hot. If it wasn't for hurricanes, hurricanes, the heat in the tropical part of the oceans would get so hot that it would kill all the fish. You know, we need those fish. Hurricanes also bring chlorophyll uh, into the coastal regions. So there's a lot of benefits we get from hurricanes. Half the rainfall on the eastern coast of the United States comes to us thanks to hurricanes. And so without that rainfall, we wouldn't be able to grow the food uh, that we grow. That's true of wildfires, uh, it's true of tsunamis, earthquakes, everything we call a natural disaster. Actually, we can see it's optimized. Now, God could eliminate it entirely, but it would mean you now have a universe without thermodynamics, gravity, and electromagnetism. And God's far more interested in eradicating evil and enhancing our free will capability to experience love. And, uh, you know, you were also mentioning, you know, well, couldn't God uh, have made sure that we would have less rebellion? He could have. He could have given all of us humans a much weaker free will. But with a weaker free will, you get weak love. God mm -hmm. wanted beings capable of expressing and experiencing strong love, which is why he gave us strong free will. And he knew that there would be people who would use their strong free will for evil intents, which is why he designed the universe in advance. He knew all along uh, that humans uh, would rebel against him. But he designed the universe before he created it, before he created us humans, with all the physics so that he could put into place the eradication of evil and suffering. As it tells mm. us in the Bible, God began his works of redemption before he created anything at all. And so all the characteristics, that's why I put this in design to the core. Given that the Bible says he began his works of redemption before he created anything at all, as a scientist, I would anticipate everything I measure within the universe and all of its components would have that earmark of being designed for the purpose of redemption. And indeed, that's what we're seeing. Dr. Ross, one of the arguments I'll hear from the skeptical community is, well, why is there so much of the universe is inhabitable? Or uh, if, if the universe is created with us in mind, then why is it so big? And I've actually heard you argue that it actually needs to be the size that it is. Right, right. Can you, can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, I certainly can. The mass, the size, and the age of the universe all must be exquisitely fine-tuned for us humans to possibly exist. And I think the easiest thing to understand there is the mass, uh, because the mass of the universe determines what elements you'll get in the universe. So when God created the universe, there was only one element, hydrogen. Uh, but the universe had a at a mass that govern how rapidly the universe expands. Now, if you make the universe slightly less massive than what it is, the universe will expand so rapidly from the cosmic creation event 
that during the first four minutes, only a small percentage of the hydrogen will be fused into helium, if anything at all. And so, in the universe we now exist in, it has precisely the mass so that within the first four minutes after the cosmic creation event, 24% of the hydrogen gets fused into helium. And it's that ratio of 76 to 24 that enables the universe to have all the elements you see in the periodic table. And so with the universe having slightly less mass, you get so little helium being produced that the future stars will not be able to make any elements at all heavier than lithium. That means you have a universe with no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen, no possibility for life. On the other hand, make the universe slightly more massive, so much helium gets produced during those first few minutes that the future stars quickly transform all the hydrogen and helium in the universe into elements heavier than iron. And in such a universe, likewise, all you get is a universe with no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen. To get the elements that are necessary for life, the universe has to be precisely fine-tuned in its mass. You say, how fine-tuned? Well, to within one part in a quadrillion, 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 quadrillion. Disturb it by that, that little bit of an amount, you will not get the elements you need for advanced life. I mean, for example, there are elements in our body that are heavier than iron. And without those elements, we would all die. Uh, there's 22 elements out of the 98 you see in the periodic table that are crucial for us to live. And... Uh, those elements are what we call vital poisons. Too much in your body, you will die. Too little in your body, you'll also die. They have like to arsenic. be just right. Arsenic uh, is one of those vital poisons. You need a tiny amount of arsenic in your diet uh, because there's proteins that are built on arsenic that if they're not there, you will die. But we all know that you don't want to overdo the arsenic. Too much <laughs> arsenic... Uh, and you will also die. It yeah. has to be just right. But that's just one of 22 elements where the amount in your diet has to be fine-tuned. And we happen to be living on the only planet that we can detect that has those 22 vital poisons at the just right levels. That's one reason why Mars is not an option. Mars's crust has 60 times as much sulfur in it as we see here on planet Earth. I don't know if you ever saw that movie, The Martian, where they got Matt Damon growing potatoes on yeah. Mars. You can't do that. There's way too much sulfur. Oh, so uh, if you want to grow potatoes on Mars, you better bring the soil with you. <laughs> my, my dreams have been crushed. <laughs> well, that's just one problem with Mars. There's a lot of other problems. But yeah, we're sure. living on the only planet uh, where those... Yeah. In fact, you'll see in Design to the Core, I got a table of the elements that we see in the crust of Earth and the abundance of those elements we see everywhere else in our galaxy. And except for magnesium and iron, all the elements we see in planet Earth are present at highly anomalous amounts. Mm. And we're talking in some cases, uh, for example, for our planet, uh, we'll have 340 times as much uranium, 630 times as much thorium. Uh, you know, 90 times as much lead, 
60 times as much titanium uh, and you know only 1 60th the amount of uh, sulfur and as you go down the list everything's anomalous and it's like this can't be an accident somebody with a mind must have made sure that our planet had everything at the just right levels so if i summarized this for like a layman what what I'm hearing is, is that someone like a Neil deGrasse Tyson might come along. You quote him in the book and you say something along the lines of uh, the universe is so many things in the universe are trying to kill us or something. I'm paraphrasing. W one of the ways I could kind of combat that would be to say on the surface, it may look like that. But when you begin to really look below the surface and you start to look at these levels of fine tuning on every level from the universe itself down to the core of the earth, it actually appears quite the opposite, that, that the universe is actually here to support life. Would that be a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment, but where I do agree with Neil deGrasse Tyson, once we get beyond planet Earth, everywhere we look within the universe, we see conditions that are extremely hostile to advanced life. Mm. And so, uh, but this tells us just how special our planet is. Right. It also is suggesting that, uh, you know, we may be living on the one location. I mean, as a Christian, I'm willing to conceive, well, maybe God performed miracles somewhere else uh, where life could exist. But sure. so far, everywhere we astronomers have looked, we see only very hostile conditions, which mm. tells me we better take good care of planet Earth. We're not going to find another one. We already know there's not another one anywhere close enough to make a difference. Yeah. I do want to ask you some more sort of questions on on application, how we might use some of these um, aspects of fine tuning and and things in in interactions and conversations. But first, I want to talk about magnetic fields because that's one of the things I, I think is really cool and and for me persuasive uh, as the Earth's magnetic field and also its interaction with with the Moon. Can you talk a little bit about how those aspects are so important for life? Well. I put this in the book. It was discovered uh, two years ago, and I've been telling people this discovery is probably the greatest uh, addition to the fine-tuning argument in the past decade. And it's research showing uh, that the Earth and the Moon formed as a result of two planets colliding with one another. And uh, that resulted in both the Moon and the Earth having a huge iron core and also where the core was hot, because that collision event generated a lot of heat. And uh, the moon began very close to the Earth, close enough that both bodies had a hot liquid iron core, but because of the proximity to one another, their mutual tidal friction circulated the liquid iron in their core. And that gives you a dynamo. Uh, so that's how electric motors work. You gotta get them circulating. And so both the moon and the earth began with strong magnetic fields. And it took the combination of the earth's magnetic field and the moon's magnetic field to thwart the radiation from the early sun. Uh, because like all stars, uh, the sun when it was young was pouring out intense particle radiation, X-ray and gamma radiation and flaring activity. And normally, that would have sputtered away all of Earth's atmosphere and all of Earth's water. And if it was just for the Earth's magnetic field, it wouldn't have been strong enough to prevent that from happening. 
but the moon's magnetic field and the fact that the moon and the earth were so close together at that time, their magnetospheres coupled. They joined together and gave the earth a strong enough magnetic protection to prevent the sun at that time from sputtering away all of earth's water and all of earth's atmosphere. Now the moon's been spiraling away from the earth. Today it's far enough away from the earth uh, that the tidal forces the moon exerts on the earth is not enough to sustain our strong magnetic field. But as it's been moving away, the core of the earth has been cooling down. And that led to the formation of a solid inner core surrounded by a liquid iron core. That also led to a greater heat differentiation between the bottom of the liquid core and the top of the liquid core. It's a 1400 degrees centigrade difference. That temperature difference ignited by the formation of the solid core, started convection currents in the liquid iron core. And likewise, a diffusion of light elements out of the solid core contributed uh, to that circulation, as did the huge quantity of uranium and thorium in the Earth, the heat from that. And so we have enough convection today, in spite of the much cooler interior of the Earth, to sustain a strong magnetic field. And when I write about and design to the core, here we got the moon spiraling away, and so the Earth was in danger of losing its strong magnetic field. But that solid core formed at just the right time, about 580 million years ago, uh, to prevent the disappearance of our magnetic field. And so the timing of the formation of the solid core rescued Earth from losing its magnetic field uh, and making advanced life impossible. And if you actually look at the fossil record, the moment the solid core forms and generates that powerful convection liquid iron core, you immediately have animals showing up on the face of the earth. The timing of the hmm. first appearance of animals is right at the moment uh, that our magnetic field uh, gets rescued. And so there again, I see the fingerprint of God uh, and making sure we got the magnetic field we need uh, for long enough, but also aggressively taking advantage of the magnetic field characteristics of the Earth to pack our planet with as much life as possible, as advanced as possible, and diverse as possible. And you actually see that theme in Psalm 104. It's the longest of the creation psalms, but if you read the whole psalm, its basic message is God intervening supernaturally to pack our planet with as much life as possible, uh, as diverse as possible, for as long as possible, so that we human beings come upon the terrestrial scene, we have all the biodeposits we need to launch and sustain global civilization. Wow. Well, I find that fascinating because, uh, you know, growing up, I never knew that there was a magnetic field. And I thought, well, if you went out into space, uh, there's no no risk to you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm thinking, how, how are they going to go to uh, Mars without like super shielding from radiation? It doesn't take very long to and you're going to get cooked. Well, our magnetosphere is what protects us from deadly uh, solar and cosmic radiation. And it's one thing to send people to the moon, because the Earth's magnetosphere protects you for about halfway to the moon. And so if you only spend a few days in the moon, you can come back into the safety of our magnetosphere. But going to Mars, yeah, you're going to be way outside of our magnetosphere, 
and you either got to have very heavy shielding in your spaceship or you got to build an artificial magnetosphere. And we know how to do that for a spaceship that's about the size of the moon. But for a small spaceship, yeah, I mean, the only option is to build heavy shielding. And now you've got a very expensive heavy spaceship. And uh, once you get to Mars, forget about living on the surface. You can only live underground because on the surface, you're going to be exposed to deadly radiation. Hmm. So, so I'm in favor of trying to explore the moon because we don't have to keep people there very long. Uh, right. But actually, we're no longer in the Apollo era. We're in the 21st century. The technology today is such that there's really no purpose in sending people. Machines can do the job and get us a lot more scientific information in much less time for a whole lot less money. Uh, keep the astronauts here on planet Earth. Send the machines to the moon, Mars, and elsewhere. Because uh, they can handle the radiation. We can't. Well... Now, an application question, because when I read through the book, I'm personally fascinated, like, wow, everything's designed from every angle and every aspect and everything's balanced on a razor's edge. And then I think, wow, if only I could use this uh, persuasively, because uh, I feel like, you know, I would need to say, well, here, just read the book, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is great. But what sort of advice you might have for bridging the gap? Well, I'll give you an example. I mean, we're just talking about this formation of the Earth and the Moon and the magnetosphere. The scientists who wrote the paper concluded their paper saying, uh, this is a habitability requirement, uh, which was an incredible understatement. Because what they're really saying is, the only way a planet's going to be habitable is if it's orbiting a star that has minimal radiation problems for advanced life. That's our star of the sun. And, you know, there's a chapter in the book on stars and the sun uh, where I basically show you the sun is the most stable star we've ever been able to observe. And I show you the star that comes second to the sun. Its luminosity instability is five times greater than what we measure for the sun. Hmm. So lots of stars have twins of one another. We've yet to find a star that's an adequate twin. So not only must you be orbiting a star exactly like the sun, your planet has to form as a result of two planets merging together, forming a moon just like our moon. And so for a planet to be truly habitable, it must orbit a star just like the sun and have a formation history identical to the Earth-Moon system, uh, where you have the interiors of both bodies fine-tuned in such a way that you get this stable, strong magnetic field that exists for 4 billion years. And so unless you've got a star identical to the sun, a planet identical to the Earth, a moon identical to our moon, with the identical formation history, the body's not going to be habitable. Mm. Well, one thing I find is that, you know, NASA, I think what disturbs late people, NASA keeps saying, look at all the habitable planets we've found. It's only a matter of time before we find one with life on it, and we don't need a god. This is all going to happen naturalistically. Well, that presumes we've got a solution to the origin of life from a naturalistic perspective. We definitely don't. We've written books on that at Reasons to Believe. But if you actually look at the fine print of what you see in the NASA website, the only habitability criterion they're looking at, does, it, does the planet orbit in the liquid water habitable zone? that distance from its host star 
or liquid water conceivably could exist on the surface. But as I've written in Design to the Core, we now know of 14 other, or 13 other, planetary habitable zones. And so for a planet to be truly habitable, it must simultaneously reside in the liquid water habitable zone and the ultraviolet habitable zone. So NASA says we think there's 40 billion planets in our galaxy that are in the liquid water habitable zone. But how many of those 40 billion are simultaneously in the ultraviolet habitable zone? And you basically have to divide that number by 100. But now you've got 12 other habitable zones. And of all the planets that we've discovered, we've yet to find one that exists in even three of the 14 known planetary habitable zones. And the one that we have found is the one that we're all sitting on, the one that exists in all 14. Mm. Again, I'm not against the fact that there could be a planet elsewhere with life on it, but if there is, there has to be there, not because of naturalistic process, but because God supernaturally designed mm. it, just like he did our planet Earth. It sounds like um, if they want to continue being funded, then they should make it uh, sound highly likely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I speak to the NASA people frequently, and I basically tell them, look, uh, you need to change your advertising. I think it's just as exciting to have a mission to find out why there isn't life elsewhere in the universe as it is to find that there is life. You know, mm, both are valuable missions. And uh, so don't lock yourself into the fact that the taxpayer is going to think you're a failure if you don't come up with, you know, exoplanetary life. And, uh, you know, keep in mind that astrobiology is the only scientific discipline that's data-free. I mean, we have no data demonstrating that there's life elsewhere. Uh, but I've also spoken to NASA saying, you know, a more conservative mission Let's see if we can find the remains of life elsewhere in our solar system. Hmm. Based on the fact that we know planet Earth has had abundant life for 3.8 billion years. And such abundant life that when meteorites strike the Earth, the bigger ones export Earth's soil throughout the solar system. In fact, I've got astronomer friends who've calculated on the surface of the moon, there's 20,000 kilograms of Earth's soil for every 100 square kilometers of the moon's surface. And uh, we can go to the moon and we'll find that Earth-transported soil. One wow. ton of Earth's soil has 100 quadrillion uh, microbes in it. Now, the conditions on the moon are such that those microbes aren't going to survive. But because of the geology of the moon, well, I would anticipate we're going to find pristine fossils of Earth-transported life on the surface of Mars. And what excites me, we'll never find the fossils of Earth's first life on planet Earth. Earth's geology has destroyed those fossils. But the moon has very little geological activity. Mm. On the surface of the moon, we will find the pristine fossils of Earth's first life. And we can look at those fossils and determine who got the origin of life model right. The mm. theists, or the non-theists. And I remember speaking at NASA Houston telling them, last time I checked, 100% of the U.S. taxpayer base was made up of theists and non-theists. <laughs> and both sides would really be thrilled at you being able to determine 
uh, who got this right. They could literally settle a huge philosophical debate by going to the moon and finding the fossils of Earth's first life. Now, we'll find them on Mars as well, but the problem with Mars, you don't have 20,000 kilograms, you only got 200 kilograms. It's going to be far harder to find the fossils of Earth's first life on Mars than it is to find them on the moon. Wow, it's fascinating. One other thing I hear people say in, in response to life, you know, finding life on exoplanets is that maybe they're looking not for carbon-based life, but something that's based on something else, um, maybe a different kind of organism. Um, so that's why they continue to hold out hope in that regard. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that was settled some 40 years ago where chemists actually looked at, could we make life based on arsenic? Can we make it based on boron? Can we make it based on silicon? And what they discovered is carbon's the only game in town. Carbon is the only element in the periodic table with a necessary bonding complexity and bonding stability to make the array of molecules that you would need to have a physical organism. And so when we're talking about finding life elsewhere in the universe, uh, we recognize it's got to be carbon-based. And it's carbon-based, water's going to be crucial, oxygen's going to be crucial. And so people already have an idea of methane. They already know what to look for because they understand uh, that to have physical life, there are significant constraints. Uh, but one of the problems my extra exobiology friends are facing is all the biomarkers for life are easily duplicated uh, by non-biotic processes. So methane is not a, a unique biosignature. Oxygen is not a unique biosignature. Water isn't either. And so it's going to be extremely challenging uh, to be able to demonstrate uh, whether or not life exists. But I see an easier way to go. It's not going to happen unless you find a planet uh, that is orbiting in all 14 planetary habitable zones. And so until you come up with that, uh, don't even bother looking for these chemical signatures. Uh, they're going to be irrelevant. And this is a lot cheaper. It's a whole lot cheaper to determine whether a planet is orbiting in the appropriate uh, planetary zones. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ross, I just have two more questions for you. One has to do with your approach to scripture and the other one has to do with your um, uh, approach and debate. Uh, and so uh, the, one of the things I, I've been following your work for mm, geez, at least 20 years. And uh, one, one of the you things sure that, don't look that old. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And um, one of the things that I've seen come up here and there, a type of criticism maybe is you're that they'll say that you're a concordist. Um, yes. And and they'll say you're reading modern science into scripture uh, and that, you know, we should be trying to get back to what the original author intended and um, that sort of thing. And I've always been curious, you know, I've always thought if I ever get the opportunity to ask him, uh, I want to ask him about this. So, so, for example, for listeners who might not be familiar, a concordist, according to critics, might say something when the Bible says that the Lord stretched out the heavens, right? That this is an allusion to the expanding universe. So I was just wondering kind of what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, we could come back in a few months from now because uh, my latest book, 
uh, which is about to go on the press. I'd love to. It's on the very topic of concordism. <laughs> oh, excellent. Uh, Super. Well, I mean, I've been reading the same literature and say, you know, uh, there are reasons to believe is being singled out by name here. Mm-hmm. So a uh, bunch of theologians came to me and says, Hugh, you need to write a response. And I realized it needed to be a full length book. Oh, so what I do in this one. book on a dual revelation is I talk about soft concordism, moderate concordism, hard concordism. But I notice the theologians that are critiquing and attacking me, mm-hmm. uh, they say we have to abandon concordism. But as I look at their writings, they're concordists just like I am. Because what they're looking at is the scientific case uh, for uh, naturalistic biological evolution and saying, we have scientific evidence there that seems very compelling. Therefore, we have to reinterpret the Bible to fit this scientific evidence. And so I'm saying, you're accusing me of being a scientific concordist, but I notice in your own writings, you also are scientific concordist. Interesting. We disagree on the science. But uh, we're using the same methods. And so I kind of bring all this out and say, and I notice too, this uh, critique is coming from theologians that really do not understand uh, the genetics uh, or the fossil record or the astrophysics. So I include in that book a chapter on why uh, Darwinian-like interpretations of the history of life are not scientifically credible. And I actually cite atheist experts in uh, paleontology and the genetics making the point of saying, look, it's not just me as a Christian trying to read this into the text. People who are atheists are saying, we can't make these naturalistic models work for the following reasons. So hmm. and whole, the whole book is designed on the fact, hey, we want to settle these issues. God gave us two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And he intends that we study both and integrate both. But what I'm basically critiquing are scientists, for example, who don't integrate across all the scientific disciplines. Mm. I mean, I've been engaging geneticists making the point, you think genetics answers the problem of the history of life? You haven't taken into account solar astrophysics. They said, what has that got to do with it? Well, (laughs) there's a chapter in the book basically saying, the physics of the sun is crucial for understanding why the fossil record looks the way that it does. Uh, but most paleontologists don't take a course in solar astrophysics. Sure. Most solar astrophysicists never take a course in paleontology. But I'm also arguing we have to go to look at the Bible the same way. When it comes to creation theology, not all the answers are in Genesis. There's 65 other books. Yes. And many of those books address creation. And so if we're going to actually understand what the biblical text is saying, uh, then we need to look at all 66 books. Now, one of the things I bring about in the book is a point that you raise. Does the Bible really state thousands of years ago that we live in an expanding universe? And I basically use that as a way to define moderate concordism. I say from a moderate concordist view, We go through the 66 books of the Bible, and we can clearly identify three features of the universe uh, that are cornerstones of Big Bang cosmology. The universe has a space-time beginning. The universe is governed by laws of physics that don't change, or one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay. 
you know, that would predict a, a cooling uh, universe. Now, the fourth feature, I argue, is debatable. Does the universe really state uh, that it's expanding? Well, 11 texts in the Bible, written by six different authors, speak about the stretching out of the heavens. And I actually cite Jewish theologians living uh, thousands of years, a thousand years ago, who saw that in the biblical text. But I said, notice uh, that there are theologians today who say the Bible teaches us. Some say they don't. And I basically make the point, moderate concordism is meant to be dynamic. We need to go through the biblical text and say, maybe we're not seeing things that the Bible reveals about science that we need to seriously consider. Mm. But we also need to be prepared to back up when that proves not to be substantive. And so what I do in the book is I contrast hard concordism, where people looked at the biblical text, where they basically take just one passage and they speculate. I mean, I think eschatology is a good example of that. People have read right. Revelation and have said, hey, here's a passage. I think it's referring to helicopters. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, but there aren't any other biblical texts supporting that. Right. And there's a lot of other ways of interpreting that. And I use that as an opportunity to critique Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism. Because it says, if you actually look at their apologetics, it's all hard concordism. Reading into the text, what the text legitimately is not saying. But I also critique soft concordism, where people are so timid that they refuse to look at the Genesis text and say, I don't think it's got anything to say about creation. And it's like, have you actually read it? Or people say it's not historical. I says, look, the days are numbered. It's using all these clues that tell you it's a chronology. Mm. But they're doing that because they're afraid to read science in there that could get them into trouble. So I'm basically saying to be an effective apologist, we need to ensure we're not reading too much science into the text, but also be aware that we could be in trouble if we read too little science in the text. So that's kind of where I go. Soft yeah. is reading too much. Hard's reading too much. Moderate is reading what the text actually states. And what I love about it, moderate concordism from the biblical text, you can't make that work in the Quran. You can't make that work hmm. in the Hindu Vedas or the Buddhist commentaries. The Bible is unique in its capacity to actually uh, state a moderate concordist message not just on science, but also on history and also on morality. Wow. That, that is very helpful. And I, and that's my next book. <laughs> I would be super interested in talking to you about that for sure. So my, my last question has to do with, um, I I've been watching your debates now for, like I said, years, and, uh, I have seen you, um, called a heretic at one point. Uh, in a debate, I have seen you uh, repeatedly get the charge that the Bible is not your authority, even though you say that over and over and over again. Uh, and one of the things that my wife and I are always so blown away by is your ability to stay so calm and to stay you you never um, seem to get rattled and your 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 Christ like demeanor is just always so evident. And so I, I've, I've just always wanted to ask you, I, I know it's, you know, the Holy Spirit, of course, but but 
I, what is your mindset when you go into those debates and, and how do you stay so measured and respectful and Christ-like under kind of charges that you've heard? I mean, as many times as I've heard them listening to your debates, I can't imagine how many times you have. So I hope that makes sense. It does. And I'm a little older than you guys. Uh, this took time. Hmm. I mean, when I first gave my life to Jesus Christ at age 19, I realized being a Christian is a commitment to share your faith. Hmm. And we're to share our faith in the context of 1 Peter 3 and 4. And there's one passage there that jumps out, you know, 3.15. Mm-hmm. Always be prepared to give good reasons for your faith and hope in Jesus Christ with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. Mm-hmm. And what I learned uh, years ago is that when you're in a debate or you're talking to angry unbelievers, they listen more to your demeanor than they do your words and arguments. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important for all of us who are Christians, work on your demeanor. Wow. And I tell people, look, don't worry about trying to win the debate so much. You need to demonstrate a Christ-like character. And it takes time. I think that's one reason why God chose to use us. If he wanted the gospel to be presented perfectly, he would have sent the angels. Mm. But no, he told the angels to sit down. He chooses to use us fallen human beings because he knows that through sharing our faith, we're going to get better reasons Like, for example, if I get embarrassed and say, wow, I I didn't really present a very good reason, Mm -hmm. it motivates me to study, to develop a better reason. And, uh, you know, where I come across as obnoxious, I realize, wow, I rubbed that person the wrong way. And that's something I need to work on. And as I share with people, get feedback. Uh, You know, when I see a non-Christian that's a little bit uncomfortable with what I've been sharing, uh, it's good just to say, hey, Uh, I'm concerned that I might have uh, been uh, rude or obnoxious or arrogant. Can you please point out to me where I've uh, lacked in those areas? And one thing I've learned over the years, non-Christians are eager to point out uh, where you've been obnoxious, uh, arrogant, or unprepared, and just listen to that feedback. Hmm. Uh, And you'll get counsel, too, from Christians that are watching you and to work on it. And it's not going to happen overnight, but over years and decades, yeah, you will see uh, that development. Uh, but I also have to be honest, I'm on the autistic spectrum. Mm. And so when people insult me, I don't realize it until about two hours later. <laughs> so wow. By then the debate's over. <laughs> so, while people look at me and say, Hugh, you never seem to uh, get uh, upset when people are you know, very rude and, uh, you know, call you all these names. And I says, well, I do get upset later. Mm. There's a time delay. Mm. And so. Well, that's uh, honest. Yeah, well, it is. And I, I wanted to just share real quick. I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't. Years ago, when, when I was saved at 25, I was taught um, young earth creationism. And uh, the, I was taught the Bible, you know, taught that. And um, I began coming across some of your materials and debates and. Uh, began considering the old earth view and I began leaning that way pretty hard to the point where I was like, yeah, that's the most plausible view. So when my wife found that out, uh, she was very concerned uh, to the point where she thought like, is this heretical? And I said, I just want you to sit down and watch this debate with me. 
and we watched you and uh, Dr. Kaiser debate mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Lyles and Ken Ham. And, right. you know, that's a lengthy one. It's like four and a half hours on the John Ankerberg show. Within probably two days after we watched the debate, she came to me and said, yeah, I think you're right. I think the old earth view is uh, the most plausible. And she said to me, you know, I don't have a grandfather and I wish you Ross was my grandfather. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that would encourage you. And it was a good story. Well, Thank you for sharing that. Yes, absolutely. So you've made a big difference in our lives for sure. Well, I think that's a great place to to call it an end for today. Thank you so much for being generous with your time, Dr. Ross. It's really appreciated. Yes, thank you. We'll point everyone to your reasons.org website. Also, the links to your books, especially this one, will be, uh, you know, designed to the core, will be linked in the show notes. Is there anything you'd want to point people to? Well, you guys ask great questions, and I love the fact that you kept the conversation, uh, you know, friendly and uh, conversational. So uh, kudos to your interviewing skills. You know, I do take questions of both my Facebook and Twitter page. So uh, I can't promise to answer all of them, but I do my best to answer about 90% of the questions that people post uh, to me there. And some people just like to go there and see the questions that people are asking. Sure. So... uh, But uh, thank you. I really enjoyed this. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, We guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast, and we also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice, and please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of apologetics resources at apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's apologetics stuff over at Truthbomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening.